This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show, listeners, and salut Babette. I've got a Kurt and Andy with me at 3CR in the studio. How are hey, you, Andy? How are you going, Bill? Good to see you. And Kurt? Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going really well. And I'm, I love these shows when all three of us are in mm-hmm. here. Got the full house. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk to three historians. It's all about climate change. And you might be thinking, well, what would historians know about climate change? Because climate change is such an alarming new problem with no precedent in, in uh, pre-industrial civilization. But I think they can help. And wait and see. The environmental history of Australia shows how much damage Europeans have already done in only a couple of centuries. But it also shows great shifts in thinking about our relationship to nature, from flogging it and extracting its wealth to realising how precious it is and how volatile our climate already is. Perhaps it's only a small number, including yourselves, dear listeners, who really get this Realization, but we're trying to spread the knowledge further out because it's very crucial to our survival. I've invited Dr. Joelle Gurgis from Melbourne University. Her new book is called A Sunburnt Country and it's subtitled The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. And at about 5.30, I'll talk to Professor Tom Griffiths from ANU. His book, Slicing the Silence, takes us to Antarctica. And it was touch and go whether we would be mining Antarctica by now, except for the Madrid Protocol, which I'm going to ask him to talk about. And it was touch and go whether we'd be mining uh, the Barrier Reef. And Kurt's going to talk to uh, Professor Ian McCalman about that. Um, He's been looking at a book called The Reef. And uh, it's quite an incredible story of how such a very small band of eccentric people, really, and an artist called Judith Wright actually managed to get that reef preserved for nature. Kurt, tell us, why did you like the book? I liked it because I learnt that a poet, an artist and a scientist can be as powerful as big oil and a ruthless government. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) Yeah, well, Ian McCallum's done some marvellous work in that book and he's got an interactive kind of website that goes with it. So listeners, when you look at our Beyond Zero Emissions podcast page, please really spend some time looking at that. If you don't have time to read the book, you can get a lot just from the website. So have we got Dr. Joel with us? All right. Dr. Gurgis won the Eureka Prize for Excellence in Interdisciplinary Scientific Research. And now she's produced this easy-to-read book, taking us back to the early settlers' diaries and weather records. She is a climate scientist, but I think she's also a historian. And if you've ever had that sort of eureka moment in the stacks of a library when you discover an old newspaper referring to one of your ancestors, you will love this book. It's like an episode of Who Do You Think You Are? But the subject is Australia and its climate. So Joel goes into the ice cores and tree rings that tell us really who we are. So welcome, Joel. Hi, Vivian. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be talking to you. I really enjoyed your book. Can you tell us about that moment in the library when you discovered William Dawes' notes from 1788? Well, it's one of those amazing moments, I think, that only really happens once or twice in your 
in your scientific career we actually come across something that is, is really remarkable. So I came across um, William Bradley's early, early weather journal that was kept from 1788 to 1791. And while the original was held at the Royal Society in London, I managed to track down a microfilm that was kept at the Value Library at the University of Melbourne. And the exciting thing about this was that uh, William Dawes actually took daily temperature, air pressure, winds and other remarks four to six times every single day. And this record was left untouched for 220 years until I came across and I picked it up and I actually analysed it and I published it. And it was just amazing to think that such a valuable record could just lie uh, buried within uh, these historical archives because I think scientists don't often look to history when thinking about a contemporary issue like climate change. No, and your book fills in so much ground that perhaps n- nobody has known about. Nobody's seen the big picture of, of our uh, 19th and 20th century climate, have they? No, well, I think there's been effort in the past that's looked at local histories or regional histories, but I was really lucky to assemble a team of some of our leading climate scientists and also historians, and we were joined by 10 different organisations, including the Bureau of Meteorology, the National Library, the State Library in uh, Sydney and also in Melbourne, uh, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and a range of other organisations, and we were really interested to try and understand our long-term drought and flood history in Australia and so um, it was a big effort and it, it involved a lot of people from all walks of life to try and really piece this together so no one of our communities could really do it on their own and that was really the beauty of that project and I would hope that in Sunburnt Country, my new book, uh, that I try and piece that together for people that, you know, you know, you don't have to be a scientist to read this book, you mm-hmm. just have to have an open mind. I think that's really important when we when we start talking about climate change in Australia because it can actually elicit a lot of uh, strong opinions, if mm-hmm. you like. That's right. Well, I think the early settlers took as long to understand the climate they were in, having come across the seas to Australia, as we are taking in the 21st century to realise that we're actually changing the climate with our coal and gas exports and our land clearing and our overconsumption. I think they were slow to on the uptake. It was an erratic climate even then and it's becoming more erratic now but this denialism, this unwillingness to face it was very clear and I'd like you to give us some examples that you found where peoples had this sort of bubble of optimism which had to be burst Well I think, yeah that's a a really nice question and I think that people sometimes forget that we are actually the driest inhabited continent on the earth so around 70% of Australia is actually arid or semi-arid, which means that most of our country receives less than 50 centimetres of rainfall each year. So in a nutshell, away from the eastern seaboard, we're actually mostly a flat and dry desert continent with wet coastal fringes that house all of our capital cities. So we already have a pretty precarious relationship with rainfall. And an interesting example um, that we came across during the 1870s was um, in South Australia where there was a really wet period during the 1870s and so people thought, okay, well, we can push further north into uh, into the arid zone and actually try and um, expand our agricultural output. And so people actually did that thinking that the rain follows the plough and so that the climate would actually um, follow their, you know, human uh, intention. But sure enough, in the late 1880s, a long drought hit the region and entire towns and farms had to actually be abandoned as the rain 
eased off and we return to these drier conditions that is more um, in, in line with the long-term average for that region. So it was one of those examples where people were always looking to be a bit overly optimistic about what was possible with the Australian landscape because we are a really ancient landscape with shallow soils and precarious rainfall. So in many parts of our country, um, we're still getting to know that and, and really trying to appreciate that. Yes, I interviewed someone once about the Goida line and she, mm-hmm. said, she said that the Goida line is actually coming further south now. If you did it now, it, there'd be an, another whole tranche of country that isn't dependable. Exactly right. And so what I just described was actually that Goida line. That was actually what I was talking about. And, and so uh, in, in recent years, we've actually found that a lot of Australia's rainfall, a lot of these westerly systems that dump a lot of um, rainfall across southern Australia are actually th- tracking further south, which means a lot of our precious rainfall is falling in the southern ocean instead of on uh, in our agricultural areas. So we're actually seeing that happen now because of an expansion of the tropics and a change in our storm tracks. So uh, we are actually starting to see that um, in, in the modern observation. Mm. Well, look, climate deniers love to quote extreme events in the past. I've read many things in the Daily Telegraph, for example, where they talk about these thousands of bats falling out of the sky in a heat wave. And they say, look, it always happened. It happened back there in the early days of the colony. And just because it's happening now doesn't mean we've got climate change. So I'd like you to read a little quote from your book in 1790. There's a quote from uh, there on page 19. If you could just read that and then explain to us. The sort of thing we can say to a climate denier like um, Andrew Bolt or someone who says, look, it's always been happening. What can you say that climate change is adding another layer of intensity to this existing pattern? Well, I guess what I'd firstly say is that it's really the rate and the magnitude of the change that matters. I think that people sometimes forget that... um, Really, no one's really disputing the fact that we've been through things like ice ages and we have seasonal variations in our climate. But because we've actually um, changed the chemistry of the ocean and the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution around 1850, that's actually changed the way that our, that our climate is actually operating. So uh, that's something that I think that is, is very much overlooked. For example, carbon dioxide levels have increased 30 times faster than right now than in the pre-industrial rates uh, of change, meaning that we've actually accelerated natural rates of climate variability. And I think that's really a point that sometimes gets a little bit overlooked. And, and I think that um, it's one that I really I really try to highlight in my book because I think that, um, you know, I think every Australian knows that we are the land of drought and flooding rains, but, but now our natural cycles are no longer the only influence on our climate. So since Dorothea McKellar wrote her iconic poem, we've actually warmed about a degree in Australia. So all of our um, weather and climate is now occurring on the background of a warmer planet. So I just want to say that because I think that's that's really important for people to recognise. Mm. Would you Do you have the book with you? Would you like to read that little passage? I actually don't have it on hand. I'm sorry well, about that. Well, I'll, um, I'll but, read it. Can I just read it? Because I just don't want to have a program on history where we don't have the voices of the past. Oh, please do. Because yes. the book was so marvellous. It's full. The listeners, this is, her book is full of these little settlers' diaries and so on. But this was um, Governor Philip. And he said in 1790... Um, Uh, about an intense heat wave. An immense flight of bats, driven before the wind, covered all the trees around the settlement, whence they, every moment, dropped dead or in a dying state, unable longer to endure the burning state of the atmosphere. 
nor did the parroquets, though tropical birds, bear it any better. The ground was strewn with them in the same condition as the bats. And then there's another um, writer called David Collins. He said, fresh water was very scarce. Most of the streams and runs about the cove had dried up at Rose Hill. The heat on the 10th and 11th of the month on which day at Sydney, the thermometer stood in the shade at 40 degrees centigrade, was so excessive, um, <clears throat> being much increased by the fires in the adjoining woods, that immense numbers of the large fox bat were seen hanging on the boughs of trees and dropping into the water. In several parts of the harbour, the ground was covered with different sorts of small birds, some dead and others gasping for water. So I, I think... You know, we we need to understand that it has always been like this, but it's it's getting more intense, and we shouldn't just allow the journalists to quote those things and say, well, you know, what, what's different about the present episode? That's right. It is extraordinary to see these sorts of uh, quotes. Uh, in the historical records because we know that um, when temperatures actually exceed about 42 degrees that flying foxes are known to suffer heat stress and fall out of the sky as, as, as was described by David mm. Collins and others from the historical record and that actually happened in, in the Black Saturday fires in 2009 where about 5,000 flying foxes at the Yarra Bend Park in Melbourne actually um, died during that event so it is interesting to draw these um, historical comparisons. Mm. I'd like to move on now to Indigenous people. Um, they had been, you know, cultivating this land and surviving the extremes for thousands of years, but I don't think the Europeans seem to notice them very much. And I was surprised to read how the famous Minister John Dunmore Lang was at least aware of the brutality with which they had been treated. And during a terrible drought, he called in 1839 on his parishioners to have a day of fasting and repentance. And he said, we despoiled the Aboriginal people of their land, the blood of hundreds, nay thousands of their numbers, fallen in their native forests when waging unequal warfare with them. Civilised aggressors will stain the hands of many of the inhabitants of this land. And I wondered what historical knowledge has been passed down by the first Australians that can help us understand our climate. Well, it turns out that the first Australians have followed these really intricate cycles of flowering plant and animal cues for well over 40,000 years. So things like the arrival of certain bird species, the availability of bush tucker and these kinds of things. And this intimate knowledge of the environment really was a matter of life or death. And it was used for practical purposes like tracking hunting grounds or identifying safe travelling routes as the seasons began to shift. And the Bureau of Meteorology had actually done some work with Indigenous populations around the country and have found that they can actually recognise up to six distinct seasons, which is quite different to this, the four European seasons that have been sort of transplanted into the Australian context. And, for example, in Victoria, there are six distinct seasons in the Grampian region, and they relate to climatic features as well as environmental events such as flowering plants and, and animal behavioural patterns. And so I believe there is this wealth of untapped Indigenous weather information in the form of stories and luckily um, knowledge about the weather isn't secret business so it actually can be shared with anyone and I really think we've got a lot to learn from First Australians about our natural cycles and also about caring for country, about being better custodians of the land on which we live and I think that's an idea that I think um, the broader community could really learn a lot from. 
Okay, well, you described um, several annual, but there are chapters on various things, and one of them on drought. Um, mm. You described the major drought in 1902, for example, when sheep were grotesque caricatures, mere bones holding up the pelt, skeletons and bones everywhere. And then in the millennium drought, um, farmer suicides, there was one a week mm. at one stage. And I'd like to know what message do future climate modelling scientists have for Australian pastoralists? Well, while Australia's always had dry spells, our droughts are now even hotter than they were in the past. And I think that's an important thing to remember. And so while we've always had drought in our landscape, they are becoming a bit more severe. So, for example, that millennium drought, which uh, spanned 1997 through to 2009, was our lowest 13-year rainfall period in the historical record, which was nearly double the previous record set during the World War II drought. And we did some work which calculated um, how unusual this event might be using natural records like tree rings and corals and things like that. And we calculated that it was a 1 in 1,500-year event, so a very statistically a very rare event. So we know that our rainfall is now being influenced by significant human-caused warming of the lands and seas around Australia. And so this has big implications in terms of the way that we're able to, to live and to, to work the land as well. Well, Professor David Caroli, who was your mentor in this search project, he said it's critically important that Australians become more climate literate. Yet the TV weather person that we see every night hardly mentions it. And I'd like to know, how would you like the media to serve us better in this climate literacy that we need? Well, I do think there are some great journalists out there doing their best to translate complex science. It's a difficult area, and I think that I've been, I've personally been involved in some great collaborative work, um, but it's a case of establishing trust and maintaining those relationships that I think is really important. But I think there is a bit of a disconnect between the time frame. Uh, so media works quite fast and sometimes just in the space of a few hours, but science often takes years for us to publish our results. And, and that's where I think, I think things like um, the site The Conversation has been really helpful for researchers uh, that want to contribute their expertise to public discussion. So it's become a place where uh, people feel like they can uh, quickly get information together and also use citations, which uh, as academics we, we like to have um, original sources available for people to check. Um, and I think that's helping. And I do think we have a long way to go with climate literacy. And, and um, part of the reason why I wrote Sunburnt Country was to try and really write a book where you don't need to be a scientist to read it. You just have to have an open mind and be interested in learning about our past. And I, and I hope that people will find it um, a good read as well as learn something along the way. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Joel. I'd like to speak to you as a, in another in-depth interview, perhaps with David Caroli, because we haven't got right, really even into the science of it, but that was a marvellous beginning. So, listeners, read the book called Sunburnt Country. It's available now by Joel Gurgis. That's spelled G-E-R-G-I-S. And I, li- I would like to ask you to demand that your local library gets at least two copies so that it can be available for people in the library. Thank you, Joel, and um, good luck with your book. Thank you very much, Vivian. My pleasure. Better than any doomsday clock, coral reefs are the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to climate catastrophe. We've all seen the pictures of what a living coral reef looks like, a vibrating neon garden replete with resident sea life, and we contrast this with what the shoals that have succumbed to coral bleaching look like, a bleak underwater boneyard with no life at all. 
There's no shortage of grim predictions for the reef, so it was reluctantly that I began the book The Reef. But by the middle of the first chapter, I was enthralled. The Reef is by Ian McCormick, and I should have paid more attention to the subtitle, which says A Passionate History, which it is indeed. We have Ian on the phone. Hello, Ian. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How's it going? Good, excellent. Good. Excellent. Delighted to talk to you. Good, good. Well, in the reef, you tell 12 historical stories. Uh, Some are swashbuckling, others scientific, but all are a riveting read. The reef itself becomes a character by the end of it. Why did you feel it was necessary to bring the Great Barrier Reef to life like this? Well, I think it's, um, I think it's, I mean, that's a very good question. And and I, I sometimes ask myself why I did it in that way partly it's because i realize that in history the reef has changed perceptions you know it's it's been it was seen as an absolute terror and horror by people uh, in cook's time and it's been seen by indigenous people as something to nourish them and nourish the world been seen by other people as a place to plunder as scientists as a place to find um new truths um, discover new ways of understanding nature. So I thought we had to go the human route. I mean, just to, to see the reef as an exchange between humans and a natural phenomenon. Well, it also refuses to be a downer. I think that when you give it this historical uh, context, you give it perspective and you realise that all although our current situation is is of impending crisis, by looking at it in the long term, we kind of get a sense that that it has changed and it can change again. Now, you did publish this in 2013. If you wrote it today, would you use the same tone? Look, obviously, I'd be a little bit more pessimistic in some ways today um, because things have moved faster than most of most of us expected, including the scientists who were making predictions in those days. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, I've also had experiences uh, in between with communities on the reef doing extraordinary things mm. to try and combat um, combat. You know, I suppose our pessimism and any likelihood of people giving up and saying it's all too hard. I've seen these amazing communities and recovering from great um, catastrophes like cyclones and battling on mm. and changing changing the world. So I have this kind of mixed feeling. I think I'd still like to be optimistic about the possibilities, the human possibilities, um, even if I rewrote it today. Yeah, it's it's. It's really interesting throughout the book. I, I imagine that certain chapters become more relevant as time goes on, and it, it, it varies from one to another. For example, probably uh, the most relevant today would be the chapter on the poet uh, Judith Wright, uh, the artist John Bust, who's actually my favourite character in the, the whole book, yeah. real life, and um, conservationist Len Well, um, as they battled the Joe Bielke-Peterson government of the 70s. Could you just tell their story um, really briefly? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's I'm glad you asked me that because I really do think it is a, it, it's a para, you know a parable for our time, as well as a cracking story. Mm. Um, it really, I call it the first reef war. You know that between roughly 1965 and 1975, there was a decade-long war to save the reef in Queensland, 
and it, where they were trying to save the reef from Joe Bielgi Peterson and his government opening it up to completely rampant development on the one hand, but also to mining it for coal, gas, fertilizer, and and uh, even for road gravel um, <laughs> at times. And and the thing is that they. The Bjorki Peterson government actually zoned 80% of the reef for mining. Can you imagine well, if that had been done? I mean, first of all, we need to remind the viewers that 80% of the reef is about the size of Japan. God. That's what would have been, that's what would have disappeared. But also, you know, it's a thing, apart from being a treasure, it's something that probably contributes to about a third of the Pacific biodiversity. That's amazing. So, um, you know, we faced an extraordinary challenge. And these, the interesting thing about these three people is that they were, in many ways, ordinary people. Ordinary, at least, in the power that they had. John Buist was a dropout, sort of dropout painter with great, um, actually great, literary and uh, kind of organizational talents. Judith Wright was a wonderful poetess, going deaf, actually, at the time. And and Len Webb was quite an obscure forest scientist, um, working on, actually working within the great forests from the top of, of, of Cape York, right down to Cape Otway. And these three people got together, and they really threw themselves into persuading first of all, the people of Queensland, but also then the people of Australia, that the reef was an unutterably precious thing. And they won that battle. Mm -hmm. It really is as much them as, as any other, you know, major groups who managed to persuade uh, us in the end or persuade the forces of government in the end to get together and to m make the what we now call the, the great, you know, marine reserve that the reef is, and then subsequently to have it named as a, a world heritage, um, a great world heritage, the greatest marine wonder in the world, as it's described. Yeah, it's amazing. It's um, I, I really love uh, John Bust, how he just seems to almost be uh, Joe Bielke Peterson's kind of like good twin in a weird way where he's just like he's he seems quite grumpy and willing to almost do anything to get to get results but he, he he's he's just on the side of right in this book it's great is i really love how you render the characters in this i'd love it to be a movie quite often quite <laughs> honestly i think it would make a terrific movie three you know those three characters have such um, an, an extraordinary range of backgrounds and experiences, completely different. Um, you know, John Bust was from a very wealthy uh, kind of, actually from a mining background. Right. And Judith Wright was from a grazier background, yeah, yeah. and and um, ten and and Len Webb, his father was a, a shearer, and his mother was a shearer's cook. So you know, these people represent a kind of cross section of Australia. Um, and with enormous kind of actually uh, vitality and talent and, the, you know, the willingness to fight. And, you know, in the course of that fight, Judith Wright went completely deaf and John yeah. Webb died, uh, John Abuse died of cancer. Yeah. So, you know, they, they paid a, a, a terrible price in a way. 
but they did get incredible results at the same time. They got extraordinary yeah. results. Yeah. They got extraordinary results. Um, and it's not just, just those three. Every one of these 12 chapters has either usually one or two um, characters, that are historical characters that it really brings out. I think after at the end of it, I would say that you hint that redemption lies in the stories where people earnestly try to understand the reef. Um, it's the scientists, the artists, and Judith Wright, the poet, who really want to directly interact with the reef that are, that are the heroes. Do you think we really need to understand the reef to save it? I do, I do, and I think we have to understand all those people who are um, keepers and treasurers of the reef, you know, for the indigenous people on the one hand and the scientists on the other hand, and the, and the poets, the people, and the ordinary people who love the reef, you know, who love it just for the sensual pleasure of swimming in gorgeous water and looking at ravishing uh, corals and yeah. lying on the beach, you know. So every, every side of the human sensorium is alive to the reef. And the reef is alive in itself, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different corals. Um, there on the on the Great Barrier Reef, and just you know, D David Attenborough was asked what what's the most beautiful mm -hmm. thing he's ever seen in nature, and he said a coral reef, and of course I mean the Great Barrier. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and there's a guy who's been around. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, I guess the 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 chapter that really moved me the most was the one about the the twin castaways, which was. Uh, James Morrill, they weren't actually twins, but there were these extraordinary cases where two people, James Morrill and Narcisse uh, Pelletier, um, yes, were, Pelletier yes. were shipwrecked 100, 620 miles apart from one, of each, from one another on the reef and spent seven, 17 years with local Aboriginal people where they learned to fish and sail and hunt um, and it was only later that they reluctantly returned to European civilization. Um, Moral in particular was torn between two worlds and he tried desperately to moderate the land-clearing Europeans from taking over more Aboriginal land. It's almost like you were saying that it was futile for him to try and make the Europeans understand what they were destroying. Were you hinting in a way that progress means destruction for the reef too? Well, no. Well, I hope not. But you know, you're you're right. I mean, the the poor the the poor thing, the, the sad thing about Jim Murrell was that he came back to civilization precisely at the time when the Great Frontier Wars were on, mm. when people were taking over Aboriginal land and killing them. And he was trying to live between the two worlds, you know, negotiate between the two worlds, neither of whom would accept him in the end. Yes. So it was a tragic story, and so was Peltier's, because he had become an Aboriginal person as as much as it was possible to be yeah. in language and having and having almost certainly a wife and children and absolutely loved the life that he had lived there. Yes. And then when he's taken back to France, he really dies of a broken heart. Mm. He's mistreated, um, he's, he's called a savage and so on. Again, I think in many ways I felt that these stories, I selected them in a way, um, and they're absolutely true stories, uh, because they have a kind of parable 
power about them. Yeah. They say something about, you know, the the things we're up against today, even yes, uh, when we face this this struggle yeah. in the environment at the time. Now, Ian, just before we came on, Vivian showed me your interactive website, which is the Reef, all one word. Dot Ian, I. A-I-N, McCormick, M-C-C-A-L-M-A-N.com.au. I love it. Why did you use a website as well as a book? I wanted to reach, uh, I wanted to reach young people, that's the truth. And yeah. a website was a much more effective way. And as you see, there, I made three little films as well that are on that website, each yeah. 20 minutes, and, um, uh, and picked the stories. I mean, I, if I'd had more time and more resources, I would have done the the reef war because that was the one I felt I really wanted to do and didn't manage to get do. Mm-hmm. But the but the other three were all they're ones that we've talked about really that have a have a particular power. And I was I'm hoping that that uh, I mean the website won a a, a Webby, which is a kind of Oscar oh, awesome. in yeah in yeah it's in the US. It's a really um, beautiful website. Yeah, I was yeah. against 12,000 right. international competitors, <laughs> so um, I was very proud of the, of the of it, and I hope, unfortunately, it's been hacked a number of times, so right. it may, you know, it's right. quite <laughs> difficult, <laughs> difficult to maintain. Wow. But I hope that it's got, it's reached kids, and it's reached school kids, and I mean, they often do write to me, so I hope that that's that purpose has been served you know yeah well it's it, yeah i re- i really really like it and it's a really interactive very visually rich experience um but thank you so much for coming on the show uh ian it was really great to well have thank you, you for thank you for asking me it's a real privilege and thank you for reading my book in such a wonderful and sensitive way well it really You're is a perfect reader <laughs> oh, thank you it really is a beautiful thrilling and timely book and you should all go out and buy it Thanks very much. Thanks. Andy. Okay, onward, ever onward. Eh? <laughs> You're listening to 3CR Radio. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. We're talking about history tonight and what historians can do to help us understand climate change. Tom Griffiths is the W.K. Hancock Professor of History and the Director of a Centre for Environmental History at the ANU. He also won the Eureka Prize for his book called Slicing the Silence. It's about how Antarctica is teaching us a new relationship to nature. So, welcome, Tom. Are you there? Oh, hi. Let's start with the enormity of Antarctica. The ice is four kilometres deep. It contains 90% of all land ice and 70% of our fresh water, which I learned from your book. How have we slowly come to see it as governing world climate patterns? Yes, Vivian, you've summarised that beautifully. It really is um, an extraordinary feature on the globe and it's taken us a very, very long time to realise just how how prodigious and influential it is. And so, yeah, it's the highest, driest, windiest continent. Um, perhaps people would be surprised to think of it being the highest, uh, but on average that is the case and it's because of the thickness of those ice sheets. And as you said, they're um, up to and sometimes over four kilometres thick of ice 
which is sitting on, on bedrock, continental-sized bedrock. So it took us for a while to realise, of course, that there was land down there at the South Pole. Um, um, James Cook in the 1770s voyaged uh, around looking for the Great South Land and sensing that there was a, a, a great um, land, perhaps, at the South Pole, but he, he never saw it. He, it was the Little Ice Age still then, and there was a lot of ice in the water. He couldn't get close enough to confirm whether there was land. So we've discovered that there's a continent at the South Pole, but also that it has uh, a prodigious amount of ice on it. And as you say, that constitutes 90% of the world's land ice. So um, the rest of it is mostly in Greenland. And so these are the two ice sheets that determine uh, the level of the oceans worldwide. And, and that's, of course, why um, when we realised how much ice was down there in Antarctica, and we only realised that in the 1950s, uh, we also realised that the um, uh, that the ocean levels depended on the, that ice and its preservation, and that explains our concern about um, the impact of global warming on the ice sheets today. Mm. Well, we heard from uh, Dr Joel Gurgis and Professor Ian McCalman just now how slow <coughs> Australians or humans have been to see our role as caretakers of the earth. It's only, I think, probably a new perception for European people. And it was touch and go, really, if we drill the reef for oil or mine Antarctica for coal and gold. And yet there's been revolution since then in scientific and environmental understanding. And I'd like you to tell us about how we got to our heads around the need for the Madrid Protocol and how thousands of people wrote to the government and how Bob Cork Hawke and um, Paul Keating and Michel Rocard and a few others, just a, a handful of players really, took us into a new era. Tell us that story. Sure, it's, it's a great story and it is a story that Australians should know because it's a proud story about active diplomatic missionary work uh, in uh, protection of the environment and it happened in the 1980s because from the 1970s when the um, OPEC, the oil producing countries, um, restricted oil production, there was a bit of a rush into mineral exploration worldwide and so the, the globe's eyes began to turn south and look at Antarctica and wonder if it might be a, a source of coal and oil and um, so throughout the 1980s uh, there was a movement under the Antarctic Treaty, which is a, a wonderful treaty for for peace that has existed since 1959 and governs Antarctic activities. But throughout the 1980s, there was a movement towards negotiating a, a protocol or a convention that would allow or regulate uh, uh, mining in Antarctica. And Australia, along with other treaty nations, other nations that had signed up to the Antarctic Treaty. Um, Australia was one of those nations that, although it had some concerns about, about mining, felt that perhaps on balance it was better to regulate it than not to regulate it. And by 1988, uh, this, um, this convention um, had been uh, drafted and indeed um, it was... Um, was moving towards um, formal ratification and in March 1988 there was an important uh, cabinet meeting of, um, of the Australian uh, government, uh, the Hawke government um, and at that meeting in uh, Melbourne as it happened uh, Peter Cook and Paul Keating voiced um, concern about 
about mining regular about mining uh, protocols in Antarctica about allowing mining, and but still um, Australia remained on board with this plan until later in uh, 1988, um, before the mining regime was ratified by nations, the Australian government invited community debate. Now, how about this? Um, the Department of Environment received thousands of letters and postcards. Uh, there were many conservation organisations, Greenpeace, uh, a good example, who uh, campaigned for a world park for environmental protection instead of allowing mining. Um, Paul Keating, who remained active uh, in this, uh, met with Michel Rocard, the French Prime Minister in September 1988 and, and set up relations with Prime Minister Hawke um, and the Australian Democrats uh, then um, crucial in, in the Parliament um, came out against mining by early 1989 there was beginning to be a, a sort of change in uh, the politics and a gradual movement by May towards um, preferring environmental protection over allowing mining, and in in uh, on the twenty second of May, Prime Minister Hawke, with support from the opposition, then led by John Howard, so this was bipartisan by this stage. So this is impressive, isn't it? This is a campaign by the public, really, invited by the government, um, that had turned around opinion, and Hawke said he would take on Mission Impossible and reject the mining regulation agreement and then committed to 18 months of intensive diplomatic activity around the world because Australia, um, I should explain, Australia opting out of the mining regime was very unpopular because the Antarctic Treaty system operates by consensus and if one nation decides no, then nothing can proceed. So um, uh, President Bush in America was very upset, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, very upset with Australia. But Australia... Uh, stuck to its message and patiently and carefully won over through good diplomacy over 18 months, won over all the nation, treaty nations around the world and eventually by 1991 President Bush of the United States was the last treaty nation leader to sign up to an alternative protocol called the Madrid Protocol on Environmental Protection which bans mining uh, in Antarctica and really lifted the game in terms of protecting the Antarctic environment. So Australia was very influential in that, turning around uh, a world um, debate about the future of Antarctica. I love this story, and I really think a lot of Australians are really hungry for that sort of leadership again and that sort of story where it's through diplomacy and all of that willing and dealing that uh, a new regime is suddenly made possible. It's, uh, it's just something you can be proud of. And uh, I agree. It's a great story, isn't it? Because mm. it does involve all those community groups, you know, passionate people who care about the environment and care about an environment most of them hadn't seen, mm. and also the parliament operating in the way it should operate, yeah. that is, listening to the community, inviting debate. Totally. And then, then the, the Australian government taking on the world in you know, a civilised, protracted argument for a cause that they believed in. Yes, mm. these are things we need to draw on as models. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, there was a film called Ice and Sky, and the hero of that film was a French glaciologist called Claude Lorius. And I love that film. He, he was a very elderly man in the film, 
and it was he said that during the Cold War um, he was there and all these international groups were there and because, despite the Cold War they all had to get on because it's a place of peace and uh, scientific cooperation and he was the one who discovered the carbon bubbles in ice cores and therefore the Earth's climate history going way back. And your dis- book describes the Soviet and Australian scientists working in cooperation and the you call him the living legend Douglas Mawson, who by then was very old, <coughs> um, said that he considered that, you know, the Soviets weren't down there preparing to bomb Melbourne. They were um, actually, he said, I think the Soviets genuinely desire peace and are attempting to put their house in order after the shocking rule of Stalin and his clique. So I'd like you to tell us about that period, about the international geophysical year and, the you know, the, the era of Cold War and what has been achieved achieved in Antarctica through that international peace or cooperation. Yes, it's a fascinating period, this immediate post-war period when competition between nations becomes more severe and particularly between the superpowers and that's what produces the Cold War, of course, those tensions between the Soviets and the Americans and Antarctica in the 1950s is is really being um, explored by scientists more comprehensively than ever before and a common language of science begins to build up and cooperative relations between countries through scientific endeavour begins to build up. So even though Cold War tensions are going on in Antarctica, which is such a, an elemental place that, it's, that humbles one, that makes nationalism seem weird, <laughs> people had to relate to one another not just as human to human but as questing human to questing human needing one another to survive but also to explore and understand the planet upon which they lived and they share and so i think a very humbling environment that brought people together and out of that came a proposal for igy as you mentioned the international geophysical year which actually went over 18 months from 1957 to 1958 and it was a huge cooperative endeavor worldwide but particularly focusing on Antarctica. And uh, there was a huge um, increase in scientists working down there and a lot of cooperation between nations and between Soviets and the Americans. Um, you know, the, the Soviets had Americans uh, working with them on their, on their bases. Um, so there was cooperation even when political leaders were at standoffs people were working together in Antarctica. And so following that very successful scientific um, uh, festival, if you like, um, uh, people felt, well, this should continue in some way. And the Antarctic Treaty came out of that, a treaty that, that defined Antarctica as um, a place for all, all humanity, for peace, uh, our first disarmament treaty, uh, no nuclear weapons to be in Antarctica, and always you know, the, the right to visit one another's stations and inspect what one another were doing to share all research. Uh, you know, these, that was a huge and very important treaty and it's still in operation and it's still working. It's one of the, the things from the mid 20th century that, that we really want to carry into the, well into the 21st century and beyond. It's, it works and it has governed life and politics in Antarctica and it did so by putting aside uh, claims for territory, putting aside rivalries mm. and saying let us, let us put science first, knowledge first and work together in understanding this place and its it and the immense role it plays in in the history and 
climate and future of our planet. Mm. Look, I, I loved your description of that Vostok station where you said there there's a sea under that ice called the Vostok Sea and it's a massive sea and it's so cold that a billy of boiling water thrown in the air freezes immediately and you said it made you feel how fragile we are way out of our biome like space travellers. And I wonder, do you think Antarctica is really a place where we can see Earth science being transformed into planetary science? We're getting a kind of a global understanding of ourselves by being down there. Oh, I think that's absolutely right, Vivian. And, and it really is a place which, when you visit, you feel like you've left Earth. It is unearthly and it is ethereal and beautiful and the ice is this transcendental landscape so just in terms of emotions your soul exalts to be amongst this wondrous ice and you also feel like you almost feel like you can look back on earth as another place um and also antarctica has turned out to be a fantastic platform from which to view uh uh, the solar system and beyond uh, you know it's very privileged viewing conditions for astronomers uh, so that's another way in which it's kind of connected as it uh, connects earth to other planets and but it's the it is like another world in which you can imagine a new kind of world and so it is indeed a place to think of the planet and to think of the planet's health as a whole and what's happened in the last um, 30 or 40 years, particularly with climate science and global system science, is that we are beginning to think of, uh, of planetary boundaries, of planet the planet as having a, a holistic history of its own, as being a self-regulating organism that, that humans are disturbing now, particularly with our impact on the climate, and that we really need to mature to survive. We need to become custodians of planetary health and so Antarctica is one of those places that has really helped us come to that realisation. Mm. Well we've both waxed lyrical because I really always want to tell the good side of things and your history writing always emphasises the frailty of human nature and I, I think you're very sympathetic to us human beings but you do ask the question is Australia intellectually and politically investing in Antarctica or are we just sitting on it and I'd like to know what your answer to that is. Yes and, and I formed that question with help from uh, the historian Stephen Murray-Smith who uh, wrote a book called Sitting on Penguins in the 1980s when he visited Antarctica and said, you know, well, you know, uh, uh, what are we doing down there? Are we just um, sitting on penguins or actually um, creatively and constructively contributing to Antarctic culture? And he wrote that book in the mid-1980s and in a way the story that I just told about Australia's role in arguing for the Madrid Protocol showed that we were and are indeed doing much more than just sitting on penguins. We are showing ourselves to be a very constructive uh, uh, treaty nation uh, and there are good scientists. I have great admiration for the work that scientists and administrators do in the Australian Antarctic Division, which has, I think conducts terrific work and I'm pleased that, that they're through support from the federal government that they're investing in a new icebreaker which is now being uh, built to follow Aurora uh, Australis and, and it's actually going to be given the name a Palawa word from um, Indigenous Tasmanian language uh, Noyina uh, which is a word for um, Palawa word for southern lights and so we're recognising Indigenous history and, and if I can just 
say that, you know, indigenous Tasmanians would have been the most southerly humans during the last ice age, looking south to the ice. So that's very appropriate. And so Australia is continuing to invest in Antarctica, but, but not enough. And there's, we've seen, very sadly, we've seen um, the Australian government in recent years withdrawing support for climate science which is disgraceful and because this is so vital and it's part of our global citizenship to contribute to this and our scientists are doing fantastic work and it is cautious careful responsible science and it is it is quite wrong to see them as being in some way political we need to know what is happening to antarctic ice uh, and Antarctic ecosystems in order to be able to manage and plan uh, more sensitively and Australia has a vital role in that. So um, it's a good, it's a mixed story. We, we've got a continuing commitment to Antarctic science and culture and we're, we're grateful for that but uh, the federal government needs to do a lot more in terms of helping and, uh, climate science not just in Antarctica but more broadly across this continent. Thank you very much. So that was Professor Tom Griffiths. Um, I'd like to encourage listeners, if you're young at all and likely to take up studies, to consider environmental history as a subject. His, um, he is um, the Director of the Centre for Environmental History at ANU, and we haven't got time to talk about that, but maybe at another show. But I think that cross-disciplinary um, work that we've heard tonight from those three historians and uh, crossing over with science is very, very important and, and taking it to a wider audience. So Tom's book is called Slicing the Silence and I hope listeners will listen to it. Uh, now we're going to have a little bit of music, are we? Yeah, and then um, an outro. So thank you very much, Tom, for talking to us. All right, we have a few things coming up uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, we have Bill McKibben's tour arrives in Melbourne on May the 3rd. Bill McKibben is a global climate ad, uh, activist leader. He wrote the book on climate change, literally, all the way back in 1989, The End of Nature, which is regarded as the first widely read book on climate change. Back then, it was global warming. Uh, he will be doing... Uh, lecture in Colling at Collingwood Town Hall and tickets there are 28 bucks uh, concession is 20 bucks just type in Bill McKibben B-I-L-L-M-C-K-I-B-B-E-N and Carlton in Google and click the first link uh, the fight against Adani is at a very very pivotal moment the traditional owners of the land the mine will be on the, the Wangan and Jagalingu people are immersed in a lengthy court battle over native title they really need your help. Head to their website, which is wangangalingou.com.au, to donate. Repeat, wangangalingou.com.au. And finally, Vivian, Vivian was looking for interest in a really interesting project that she's working in, on. Viv, what are you cooking up? Well, it's uh, called Low Carbon and, Carbon and Loving It, and we've interviewed both the father and the son who wrote that book. It's now available, and I wondered if anyone's interested in a little study group, maybe three evenings, um, and we could meet in town at uh, the Friends of the Earth, or we could meet at the BZE offices at Ross House in Flinders Lane. Uh, I just need to have an expression of interest. So if you'd write to me at uh, radio team 
at bze.org.au and just say I'd like to be I'd like to be part of this study group. It's like a reading group and we've got this book but it's about exploring the ideas. We we all talk about big governments changing, policies changing, divesting, big things like that. But I think a lot, as Kurt was saying in the interview about the reef, knowing it in your bones, like that man who lived on the reef with the Aboriginal people, he then started to see it and love it in a different way. Similarly, low-carbon living. Who of us saying, stop Adani, you know, blah, 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 you know, divest from such a big company? Who really lives low-carbon life? It's actually possibly quite difficult in our society. And to explore those ideas and where it takes you and just as sort of, uh, it's just like a... A low carbon and loving it is, is the book. And just to explore the ideas in his book, I, I would love to um, lead that group if, if you're interested. So um, a radio team at bze.org.au or you could send me a text on 0424 um, Now, the other things that Kurt mentioned, the Wangan Jagalingu people and the... Uh, talk at Collingwood Town Hall we can put that on our website so go to the BZE website and look for the podcast for tonight's show I hope you also do subscribe to our podcasts, I met two people over the last couple of days who said oh I know your voice I've heard you on radio and one was from Hobart and one was from here and they listen to the podcast, once I walk my dog and I listen to the podcast And <laughs> so please be one of those people who subscribe to our podcasts and look at the BZE website Andy's winding me up now. <laughs> so, thank you, Andy. No thank worries. you, Kurt. Always a pleasure. Thank, you. thank you, Roger, out there for um, doing the podcast. And thank you to Professor Ian McCalman, mm-hmm. Professor Tom Griffiths, and to Dr. Joel Gurgis for their marvellous books and marvellous uh, talking to us tonight. <laughs> 